0: Hello and welcome to Dismiss Wow, my name is Pat, I'm the host of this podcast. This is a podcast about bridging the gap between society and academia. There are a lot of people who are in academia who have been sharing their research publicly. They share their research in TED Talks, on TikToks, on YouTube, on Twitter, although it is not all of them and there are specific reasons for that. I'm going to stop this introduction right now before I preempt what we're going to To be talking about. Today, I have the privilege of hosting the program curator for my degree. As I said in the last podcast, I am studying a master's in screen media and innovation, which is a problem and project based learning program where we spend a year looking at a problem. And then we come up with projects to deal with that problem. Welcome, Katrin. Uh, Please introduce yourself to the audience and tell them a bit more about yourself. Um, My
1: name is Katrin Diedenberg. I'm a professor of participatory culture at Tallinn University's Baltic Film, Media and Art School. Um, And in general, I kind of self-identify as an internet researcher or a social media researcher. So this is what I mostly do. I, I try to understand how people use social media and um, digital technologies and the internet and how they make meaning with it and what it means for them and what its broader kind of societal and cultural implications are.
0: Could you please share with us one study that impacted you the most?
1: All of the studies that I've done have impacted me in in one way or another. Uh, But I think maybe the one that I started my PhD work with, which was um, an ethnography uh, with a a community of not safe for work Tumblr bloggers, which initially was planned to be about a year long and ended up being about seven years long. Um, And I think it has impacted me the most because um, it kind of really helped me to come into my own as a researcher, um, it was the thing that launched, um, a lot of my other pro projects into other, uh, platforms like studying Instagram. Um, it was the community that, um, started telling me about how important selfies are before they were called selfies. Um, I initially didn't set out to study visual culture or photography. I, um, set out to study identity, um, and, uh. You know, I presume that what people do online and how they interact and how they write about themselves is part of it. But it became very obvious very quickly that the pictures they take of themselves and how they interact around those are also really important for it. Um, So I'm really grateful to the people who kind of let me in and told me about their lives. Um, I was also really lucky because... Uh, Not only was it kind of timely and um, conceptually fruitful and empirically rich, I also just really liked these people, which uh, doesn't get talked about a lot in research. But, I mean, you don't end up doing seven years of an ethnography if you find the people annoying, right? That's true. Um, So
0: I just, um, I
1: feel quite lucky and quite privileged. So, for
0: a person who's never really looked into that or they don't know what it is, like what is it if it's not safe for work?
1: Right. So, I've called it that now because this is what people used to call it on Tumblr, and this is what Tumblr as a platform used to call it. But there have been, of course, transformations in what it's called after that. So, you know, currently we talk a lot about. Um, what we call de platforming of sex. Um, so, the kind of wave of demonetizing, deprioritizing, shadow banning, or outright banning um, sexually explicit communication and expression and interactions on social media platforms that are generally linked to changes um, in the rules in infrastructure services layer of the digital technology stack. So, app stores. Um, there hasn't really been that much change because Apple App Store has always been very um, it's all it's been called even prudish because um, their rules have been kind of opaque but but often very much kind of morality driven Um, Google uh, App Store has changed towards more of that there is in the states in particular there is this kind of long-standing lobbying towards changing obscenity laws or upholding obscenity laws and the kind of ongoing fight around Pornhub and MindGeek and how the credit card companies have been embroiled in it um, is part of that. And then in 2018, in the US, they passed these twin uh, laws called FOSTA and SESTA, which ostensibly are intended to help fight sex trafficking, which of course is a very important thing, but they're very badly written, very vague laws, um, which allow holding internet intermediaries um, liable for the content that their users post, Mm -hmm. which has generally been um, always a thing that they're not held liable for. Um, and so far uh, the law was passed in 2018 so far we're not seeing that it's actually useful for fighting sex trafficking at all but it has made people already vulnerable more vulnerable because it's easier for platform companies to to just throw sexually explicit content out Uh so lgbtq communities sex workers artists um everyone who for whom either talking about sex or sexual information or sexual self-expression um, is important has suffered that was a really long rabbit hole but basically <laughs> like, not safe for work is sexually explicit
0: it's the easiest kind of way to to say that okay from what i'm picking up though what is acceptable in society is also supposed to be acceptable online right but then at the same time in society, we have people who work in sex work or, or they work with sexually explicit
1: well, content, material. Content, I mean,
0: sex education. Yes, sex education, all these things. They are absolutely important for society because it is a part of life. But at the same time, if social, if the social media platforms deplatformize platformize this, then it means that there's a certain part of our lives that is not expressed online.
1: Right. The difficulty of this comes from the fact that different cultures um, and different subcultures have vastly different values and norms regarding the intersection of public life and sexuality. Further, different states have attributed different legal status to sex work, for example. So there are some countries where it is decriminalized, some countries where it's legal, some countries where you know it's legal to buy and sell, but not offer the mediation services. In some countries, it's decriminalized to sell, but criminalized to buy. It's very complicated, right? And social media is you know while there are platforms that are preferred in in specific areas of the world, then when we talk about generic social media, like I don't know Facebook um, or. Uh, or Instagram, then uh, on the one hand, they're global, right? Mm -hmm. They have these huge user bases from everywhere in the world. But on the other hand, their rules and standards have been developed oftentimes by lawyers trained in American First Amendment law and in general, their kind of value system echoes their home culture, so the American culture. And the American culture is very specific about sex and sexually explicit stuff. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, you know, like what kind of speech or expression deserves protection, right? There is this very strong focus on freedom of speech, but that does not extend to sexually explicit speech because there is a very strong kind of cultural anxiety around sex and this presumption that we need to protect children from uh, even information, even scientific information about sex, about, mm. I don't know, contraception and et cetera, there's these you know, like a very particular version of re- religiosity um, linked into this so it is an objectively extremely complicated
0: situation to moderate or govern. How does this apply to society?
1: So, um, you know and it's easy to say that Not everybody um, is involved in kind of sexually explicit communication on social media or wants to be, and that's perfectly fine. Um, and But it's easy to then say, well, why does it matter? And this is also largely the presumption, I think, in a lot of the kind of generic social media platform companies is that this is a kind of shameful thing that nobody's going to argue about when it gets um, banned or, or hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is increasingly um, pushback um, from academics, from activists, uh, from sex workers. Uh, we did a um, session at... At the um 2020 or 2021 rights con which is this um, convention for human rights on the internet and it was the 10th time it um, took place that year when we did a session on alternative ways of governing um social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it came from these kind of concerns around uh Foster Sesta and the deplatforming of sex. Um and what uh, ended up growing out of that session, it was organized by Zara Stardust, um, um, who's um a lawyer and then legal scholar, and we had Um, sex workers in there and sex work activists and then um, social media academics and kind of um, sexualities academics involved. And we had about 60 people come um, and uh, we kind of gathered their input and then did a lot of... um, additional reaching out to um advocacy and activist organizations and we ended up publishing a manifesto for sex positive social media so it has these kind of like calls to action Um, and the argument for why this matters is that as social media takes a more and more central role um, in um, our kind of uh, public life as a as a central infrastructure for communication, as a space or a social arena where we negotiate norms and kind of make sense of ourselves and our place in the world and other people, um, then as you yourself said earlier, uh, you know, Sex and sexuality is a kind of completely normal part of people's lives, Um, and if it is um, kind of hidden or surgically removed or shamed or ghettoized or whatever word we want to use, um, then um, that you know, leads to uh, people for whom it's difficult to get information, for example, Mm -hmm. um, on sexual identities or sexual practices or whatever, missing out, Um, vulnerable populations um, being kind of harmed or made more vulnerable. Um, And in general, also, I just, I I feel very strongly that we don't need to qualify sexual content by saying it's art or it's education or it's activism, although it often is, Mm -hmm. but also just, you know, pleasure is really important in uh, people's lives. Obviously, this implies that users need more control over filtering what they see and what they don't see. But that is technologically possible. Platform companies have just been reluctant to give us this control because the more they manage what we see, the better they can sell this to advertisers. So basically, my argument here is that sexually explicit content is, and it has been before in kind of technological innovation conversations a really good litmus test or a kind of good case study where to see where to talk about governance mm-hmm. and rules and negotiations uh between different cultures about values and coexisting right how do we coexist if uh, if you and i have vastly different um, understandings of what belongs in the public space for example or what you know um, consenting adults should be allowed to talk to each other about mm-hmm. it's unsurprising but in a way for me it has been a little surprising that I've ended so deep in these discussions of basically internet regulation and governance and law and rules which if somebody would have asked me when I started my tumblr study and I was really kind of preoccupied with the kind of micro and mezzo level of it so people's personal identities and then these kind of coming together and belonging and communities mm-hmm. that I would be working at this really macro level of governance and regulation then I wouldn't have believed it but here we are
0: I have a ton of friends who would never read an academic article but they need this information right um I know that you have done some public facing scholarship but i wanted to find out if there are other people who are already doing this that maybe we can recommend for people to look at
1: so i do quite a bit of it um um, I, I even got an award for it and I teach other academics how to do it. Um, uh, but it is becoming an increasingly important part of also um, funding. So mm-hmm. if you get a grant application, you usually have to uh, tell them how you're going to do dissemination and public facing scholarship and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you are absolutely right. It's really hard work. And it's also, you know, you um, different uh, research questions and research topics lend themselves differently to it. So some things are more interesting and more easily explainable, Mm -hmm. right? And other things are are more complicated or um, run the risk of being oversimplified in dangerous ways. Mm -hmm. So we have to be quite careful, of course, also then different um, kinds of academics are also differently made vulnerable by public facing scholarship or impact work what it's called Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot of studies of basically you know like if you're lgbtq or if you're non-white or if you're Mm -hmm. a woman or if you're multiple of those things at the same time um, then you are much more likely to encounter harassment uh, when you do public facing scholarship especially if you say anything along the topics that are polarizing or um, kind of uh, partisan or uh, some people feel that it might threaten their worldview. And increasingly, we're seeing that there are so many topics that now fall into that category that perhaps it didn't used to. Mm -hmm. But uh, recommendations, absolutely so. Currently, Twitter is in a complicated place and uh, dissolving under our very eyes Um, and academics are um, at the forefront of kind of uh, migrating or still staying on Twitter, but also migrating to other platforms, including Macedon. uh, but there are people who who do a lot of really important work um um on uh twitter for example if we talk about kind of like data ethics and ethical design and internet research then there's um casey fiesler um who she also does a lot of stuff on tiktok she's really good at it jill walker Redberg, um who's based in norway uh, she has this um big project on machine vision so she's very good at kind of public facing scholarship across different platforms um there are scholars who are on youtube there are scholars who um have active blogs one of my co-authors um crystal abedin um is um generally really good across platforms um in doing um kind of accessible uh public facing scholarship um it's it's generally it's a good idea to try and find one or two and then you'll you'll kind of end up finding a lot through them by seeing who they you know um reshare or retweet or follow etc
0: yeah i will um get the links and put them into the episode description to make it easier for people to find them Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was the interview that I had with Catherine. We didn't really record an outro, but I thought it would be important for me to kind of explain what public-facing scholarship is. Um, For those who might not know what it is, it's basically when a scholar um, takes their academic information and then they put it out to the public or in the public sphere, either through social media or radio or television, whatever it is, so that the public can also benefit from what academia is learning or from whatever the study is. So, yeah, there is hope. There is hope after all. I know that in my introduction, I may have been a little... um, think i'd call it passionate (laughs) about how much academia knows and how society needs to know and i'm so glad that there are a lot of people who are working hard to make sure that you know society gets to understand the things that academia also knows yeah so that was it for today but join me for the next episode where i will be talking about lies specifically the lies that we accept or the lies we think "Eh, this one is all right I think I'll live with this one you might think that there are none of those but wait until the next podcast and with that I say goodbye and thank you for listening